it had sort of this minor legendary stature and some were shocked. I mean, there was supposed to be radio silence at sea because of, of the presence of the Japanese and a radio man was listening to the game and his captain said, what the hell are you listening to? He said, well, I think it's a football game on Guadalcanal. But he said, what? And he said, well, if you know what? If the Marines are playing football on Guadalcanal, the war must be over. An excerpt from today's guest, who reveals a virtually unknown event from World War II, which brought a little of the home front to the battlefront. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Buzz Bissinger is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Born in the Spirit. Gift-giving season is here, and for the military history lover on your list, check out my book about the Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II. Immortal Valor chronicles these timeless heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you purchase the book or audiobook, which is available now in stores and online. Welcome back. And before we get into the show, I'd like to wish all my listeners a happy and safe Thanksgiving holiday. Thank you all for being part of Porn in the Spear. Today's guest is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of four books, including the New York Times bestseller Three Nights in August and Friday Night Lights, which sold two million copies and inspired the film and television franchise. His latest book is called The Mosquito Bowl, A Game of Life and Death in World War II, and author Buzz Bissinger joins us now. Buzz, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure, sir. And your book combines two of my favorite subjects, the uh, landscape of college football and World War II. How did you find this story? It almost feels fictional. You know, I, I honestly don't know how I found it because um, I found it on the web. I was screwing around on the Internet for some reason and looking up sports and football in World War II and came upon this. I mean, really, the this, this incredible story it was a football game called the Mosquito Bowl that was played on uh, Christmas Eve of 1944 on the island of Guadalcanal between two regiments of the Marine Corps that were absolutely loaded with great college football players. I mean, loaded three All-Americans, uh, seven captains from Notre Dame to Brown to California, 16 players who would either were drafted or would be drafted by the pros. And they played each other. Um, in this game, 1,500 Marines came. They beat the hell out of each other. Um, they had a ball. They had a blast. It was great for morale. And then the upshot was, because the book is not about the game, the game was really incidental. The upshot was of the 65 who played in that game, 15 were later tragically killed at Okinawa. And there had been some accounts, brief accounts. So when I read it, I just said, there's, there's a book there if, if I can get to it. What were the circumstances that led to this game? I mean, was it um, just because the talent was uh, so great? On the I, I think it was, uh, honestly, I think it was boredom. I mean, they had been trained. Uh, Guadalcanal was the staging area for the next battle, which would be Okinawa. They had been training for months. Uh, you know, they get bored. Marines want to know, you know, am I going to live or I'm going to die? They, they want to know at some point you just don't want to keep obsessing about it and dwelling on it. So morale is very important. And these two regiments, um, they would argue, they would have a few beers and argue with one another. Who would have the better team? Who would beat who? Would the fourth beat the 29th? Would the 29th beat the fourth? And, you know, the Marines. So one guy finally said, we don't argue, we get it on. Let's have a game. And what made it special wasn't just a pickup game. It was close to a real game as you could possibly get. They built goalposts. They built a, a, 
regulation field. They printed up programs. They announced the starting rosters on the PA system. It was broadcast over the Mosquito Network. The commanding General Lemuel Shepard at halftime, he crossed the field so that he would not show any favoritism to one regiment or another. I mean, it was a blast. There were 1,500 Marines a minimum. They were allowed to drink, which, of course, they liked. They were allowed to gamble, which, of course, they liked. So they were gambling on the game. So there was a lot on the line, and it was fun. Yeah. It was a great three hours, really, to, to get away from it all, to get away from the constant, endless thumbing of pressure. Am I going to make it, or am I not in the next battle? Yeah, I, I could imagine it was betting on the game. <laughs> yeah. What you say the mosquito net mosquito network this was broadcast on, but were people aware of it in the states? People were aware of it in the states. There were some write ups. There were some um, there were some radio broadcasts, uh, domestic radio pro- broadcasts about it. So people were aware. It was written about by the players. It had sort of this minor legendary stature and some were shocked i mean there was supposed to be radio silence at sea because of of the presence of the japanese and a radio man was listening to the game and his captain said what the hell are you listening to he said i think it's a football game on guadalcanal but he said what and he said well if you know what if the marines are playing football on guadalcanal the war must be over so you know it would just have this kind of delightful as i say sort of minor legendary status because these guys were great great players they could have beaten i think any college team in the country except for probably army army was was loaded with with even better players during the war years and college football was even more popular at this time in american history wasn't it than it is today yeah college football was king i mean pro football was really just it wasn't dismissed but it wasn't nearly uh, anything compared to college football a lot of the people went to the pros were considered frankly to be thugs College coaches would even tell their kids, don't play pro football, get an education, get a degree, get a job, get a future. Um, So these legendary games, Army versus Notre Dame at at Yankee Stadium and then Notre Dame versus USC, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 people. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is in the Ivy League. I mean, they were getting 60,000 a game. This is back in World War II. The East was a beast in, in football. College football was the uh, the sport and frankly really was much bigger and more popular than than you know baseball it was the sport in america really that and horse racing i hope you're enjoying this episode next time learn the story behind the creation of the legendary american fighter plane the p-51 mustang with authors david and margaret white Luftwaffe, german air force was so good and so imposing and they really held mastery of the skies over europe and in October of 1943, we were losing 50 or 60 percent of our bombers on every mission. And it was just a slaughter. It, it was apparently a crying need to get a long-range, high-performance fighter in there that take the bombers in and take them out. Another reason to click that follow button to be notified when the episode releases. And before we return to the conversation, if you're enjoying this unusual story from World War II, check out our earlier program with author Rick Baer about the Ghost Army in World War II. Starts after D-Day. It's an American unit of 1,100 guys, and they are basically doing impersonation, Rob. They're trying to pretend that they're other much larger units, and to do that, they're using inflatable tanks and sound effects and illusion uh, of various types, radio trickery, fake headquarters, phony generals, uh, amazing story. It's show 125 from season one, and you'll easily find it 
in our past episodes. Now, you referenced this earlier. Um, Fifteen of these players went on to uh, the battle at Okinawa and uh, lost their lives. But on the other side of the coin, 20 went on to be either drafted or play in the NFL. Could you pick out one from each of those destinies that you, one man you could speak about? Uh, sure. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give it away in the book, but I can mention at least two. Within the book, I wanted to try to, you know, books are about characters. If you develop characters, if you make them come alive, if you can make the reader care about them, then I think you have the possibility of a good book. And so I uh, profiled really four of the men who had played in that game and, and the two that rise to the top. One was David Schreiner, who was the All-American. I mean, if you, if you went to Central Casting and you said, I want to create an All-American, Schreiner would be it. He was a, from a small Wisconsin farm town called Lancaster. Um, self-effacing, shy, decent, kind, and a great football player. He was two-time All-American uh, at Wisconsin, wanted combat, so he joined a, a Marine officer training program when he was at Wisconsin. And uh, I write about him at length. Just a, a, a really wonderful, decent decent man, became a mm -hmm. lieutenant and then was in charge of a, of a platoon. Um, did great service um, at Okinawa, loved his family, and was madly in love with his uh, fiance Odette Hendrickson, really the perfect guy. And as he says to her, as he writes to her, he says, the only reason I'm here and the only reason I'm writing is to get back home. And as you read the book, you'll find, does he make it or, or does he not? Another is John McLowry, who was a uh, all East at Brown. He, he was a blocking back, a great football player. His father was the, was the coach of the Brown team. He went on to the New York Giants, second round draft pick, and actually started uh, for the Giants as a mm. rookie. Then they offered him nothing the second year, so he quit. And then uh, he joined the Marines right after, uh, uh, right after Pearl Harbor. He actually went in the Army Air Corps first and, and uh, didn't make it, much to his shock. Um, this is kind of funny. 20 years later, he became a football coach, and he was coaching a game. And after the game, someone came up to him, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, do you remember me? And he said, no, not really. I'm, I'm sorry. He said, well, I'm the guy who flunked you out of the Army Air Corps and basically saved your life because you could not fly at all. And if we had put you up on a plane, you would have gotten killed, which is probably true. It was the only time in his life he kind of had failed at anything physically. He became a, uh, a lieutenant, uh, was an excellent officer, careful, level-headed, and a really interesting man because he was also a marvelous, marvelous uh, illustrator so if you oh. if you get the book or see the book you'll see right on the inside cover is an illustration that he actually did um, of the jungle of bougainville where he was in 1943 just an exceptional um kind of you know machiavellian man and uh, was able to do um, anything i mean a renaissance man good writer good thinker, very, very careful. And for my purposes, his family kept everything. So it was really able, both Schreiner and McLowry, their families kept everything. So it was possible to draw the kind of portrait mm -hmm. that it was hoping to draw to, to make these men come alive. They sound almost like larger than life characters. They, I mean, to me, they were, I mean, they were, they all, all the men that I wrote about were larger than life because of, of what they went through, what they experienced, their, their sense of honor, their, their sense of duty without question, 
their willingness to die for a cause greater than themselves. Uh, they would never call themselves heroes. They didn't think themselves as heroes. I described them in the Mosquito Bowl as, you know, ordinary men rising to extraordinary circumstances time and time again. And I think that's the essence. To me, that's the essence of greatness. And that's the essence of what very few of us achieve. And they did it over and over and over again. So although I never met them, um, I did grow to love them. And I had a kind of a funny attachment in that my father was a Marine at Okinawa. Hmm. Uh, he never talked about it. He was on the line. He was a rifleman, but never talked about it. And I figured that was his zone of privacy. But as I was beginning research on the book, I finally said, I must well look up some of his records to see what the hell he did and what his rank was and designation and look them up on muster rolls. And his name is my name. And so there, in a sense, is my name. And not only was he on the line, he was in one of the regiments that I was actually writing about. Wow. And could have been at the game for all I know. So that was pretty freaky in that that's not the reason I wrote the book. But when I read that, uh, I said, all right, this is putting me over the top. And I will say that writing the book, I learned so much about him, about what he went through, about his patriotism, about his sense of duty. Um, I get a little quiet because I really wish he was here so I could just hug sure. him. And, but he's been gone for 20 years. But I'm so infinitely proud of him and learned a part of him uh, that I really never knew about, which was his willingness to, to be a Marine and, and, and to serve his country. He never, ever talked about it. And he never really took any pride in it, which I don't understand because he should have. He should have taken tremendous pride in, in what he did and, and, and what he went through. Yeah, that generation tends to be quiet, yes. Yes. quiet and humble from the uh, World War II veterans I've spoken with. It's funny, when you told me that story, I got chills um, when you talk about your father, because I just, I kind of feel like this book was meant to be. Maybe he was urging this story, you know, on to be told. You never know. You never know. But I mean, I, I, I do think I was always fascinated by Okinawa because I knew he was there. I knew the bare outlines, but I never knew how horrific it was. I don't think many people remember or even know at this point. No. Um, 240,000 people lost their lives in 82 days. I mean, that's 3,000 people. We're talking about Americans. We're talking about Marines. We're talking about Army. We're talking about Navy. Uh, they don't know how many Japanese uh, soldiers died, anywhere from 60,000 to 100,000, and then as many as 150,000 civilians who were really caught terribly uh, in the middle. So, you know, that's a lot of people, 250,000. And I do believe, and there's evidence to suggest, I, this is why Truman dropped the atom bomb. He was horrified by the overall number of casualties, which were well over 50%. He was shocked. The Japanese were still very formidable. The Japanese only interest at that point. There was no strategic interest. They just wanted to kill as many Americans as possible in the hopes that we will come to the table, which we never would. <clears throat> and I think Truman said to himself, we're not going to lose another boy on foreign soil, and we're not going to risk the possibility of invading the Japanese homelands because as tenacious as they've been, you're going to be 10 times more tenacious when you're right. um, protecting your own um, territories. And then the, the book is intense. The combat, I don't hold back on writing about it. I felt it was very, very important. I think readers have to know and we have to know what war is really about, about death, about horror. Um, and I wanted that to come across because otherwise you don't 
really know what these men went through and what they went through for the cause of all of us who live today. And I really, really uh, believe that this book really reinforced and brought out a patriotism in me that I never, never had. When I saw what these guys were willing to do, what I saw my father was willing to do, I took a pride in this country I perhaps never had. And I also believe, and I see, it's an underlying theme of the book, just how powerful a unity can be. Because we were completely unified back then. Everyone served. Women right. served in manufacturing. Uh, blacks served despite withering segregation. Uh, conscientious objectors served. You had to have a job that was vital to the war effort. And in a foxhole, there's no red state or blue state. Everyone got to know each other from every region. You didn't always like each other. But you were forced together, forced together in, in an important cause. And when you're forced together, you learn about each other, you care about each other. And as bad and awful as World War II was, it was really marvelous to see because we did it once. And the country was extremely fractured right before um, Pearl Harbor. You know, there was no one wanted to enter enter war. Yeah. There were America firsters. Congress was really fractured. A lot of people didn't write Roosevelt, but we rose to the occasion. We gathered together. And I believe if we did it once, I hope and pray, and I think we can do it again. If we just really just learn to talk to each other, which we have sort of forgotten to do. I agree. Very important words to leave this on. And we'll leave it there. The book is called The Mosquito Bowl, A Game of Life and Death in World War II. And Buzz, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining me. Next time, learn the story behind the creation of the legendary American fighter plane, the P-51 Mustang, with authors David and Margaret White. Luftwaffe, German Air Force, was so good and so imposing, and they really held mastery of the skies over Europe. And in October of 1943, we were losing 50 or 60 percent of our bombers on every mission. It was just a slaughter. It was apparently a crying need to get a long-range, high-performance fighter in there that take the bombers in and take them out. Another reason to click that follow button to be notified when the episode releases. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.